All the Cool Parts podcast is brought to you by classical guitar luthier Tomas Barobia, maker of the cutting-edge triple-core composite top classical guitar. Powerful volume, world-class tone, and exceptional playability all in one guitar. For more information and free sound samples, visit his website at www.latticeguitar.com. This is All the Cool Parts number 21 for November 18th, 2010. everybody welcome back to all the cool parts number 21 i'm your host anthony joseph landman and on this week's show we're going to revisit our very good friend dr jonathan culp and present to you another naxos laureate series classical guitar cd this one is done by the very talented french canadian jerome ducharme uh, who was the winner of the Guitar Foundation of America International Guitar Competition in 2005. Okay, we're here again with our good friend, Dr. Jonathan Culp. Welcome back, John. Hey, thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's uh, it's good to have you back, as always, for another Laureate Series edition. This is our third one. And uh, for this one, I chose, for a couple different reasons, uh, the recording by Jerome Ducharme. Is that, is that right, Ducharme? Uh, I'm not, I think it would just be Ducharme. But, well, Ducharme. down in Cajun... I live in Cajun country, and this last name is actually fairly common down here, and it would just be Ducharme. Ducharme, okay. But no, well, here they would accent the first syllable, but in in uh, French Canada, they might not. <laughs> I really don't know. <laughs> okay, we'll just say Ducharme, you know? Okay, very that's, good. That's, that's cool with me. Um, and uh, I chose this recording because, well, Jerome's a great player, and two... You were uh, the one of the judges at this competition that he got um, to record this CD, right? Yeah, this was at the Guitar Foundation of America 2005. Yeah. And uh, at the very last minute, I was asked to be one of the judges for the competition for the preliminary round where, in other words, so a certain number of guitarists enter the competition 
Uh, this year, that year, it was a little bit lower than usual. I think normally they expected between 60 and 70 guitarists to enter, and there might have only been about 40, 45 to 47 or something like that. But in the first round, all of them get to play, and they play um, a couple of standard pieces that they all have to do. One was the first movement of... Oh man, what was that? It was the first movement of a suite by Castelnuovo Tedesco, maybe? Or no, 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 no. I don't know. I didn't see the preliminary round. I was actually there, too. Yeah, I remember seeing you there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But so they had to play the what's called the set piece for the competition. We've talked about that before, where there's a brand new, newly composed work written specially for the competition. And in this one, it was by Matthew Dunn called Appalachian Summer. But then there was also, uh, there were a couple of other pieces that they had to play. In the first round, it was this one, I want to say it was by a Polish composer. Um, Oh, boy. What is that guy's name? I hate it that I'm drawing a blank on this. (laughs) Um. I'm going to kick myself later for not being able to remember it. But it was about a two-minute long work, fairly difficult to play. And then there was, I think for the second round, there was a more classical era type piece or a early 19th century, like by Giuliani Assor or something like that, that everyone had to play if they made it that far. Uh, I only judged the very first round, and uh, that was enough for me. It was actually a lot harder work than I thought it was going to be. But uh, it's definitely worth it. It was kind of cool to get an inside look at the competition and uh, to see these guys play really close. I mean, I I was sitting about six or seven feet away from them uh, when they played. And some of them were really good, and some really had no business being there. Hmm. There were more of those than I expected, actually. So when you say that... um it was more difficult work than you thought it was going to be. I mean, uh, you know, judging a kind of performance competition like this, what goes into it? You know, what um, are you instructed to look for certain things or do you just sort of look for certain things based on your own uh, biases or, or how does it work being a judge? What do you look for? Well, there are certainly biases because each one of us comes from a different angle and um, I think what they want is for us to look for, I don't know, accuracy in performance, you know, b- being able to play the right notes at decent tempos. And musicality is something that's a little more slippery trying to judge. But um, most people can see, you know, can kind of sense it when they see it. We, we were fairly much in agreement about which com- all our job was to do in that first round was to narrow the 47 or so con- contestants down to about 12. Okay. And so, and it was not that hard to narrow them down. I mean, many of them were very easy to dismiss and, uh, but we, it didn't take us long to reach agreement on which, I think it was 13 on which 13 participants went on to the second round. It would have been harder after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, do you remember specifically seeing Jerome play in that initial round? I do. Yeah, he was very good. Um, One of the most impressive. One of the things I remember best about him was that 
he was one of three or four guitarists who really was able to sell the set piece, Appalachian Summer by Matt Dunn. This is a piece that I wasn't that crazy about. They, yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about this piece because this was a piece that I played, uh, the very first piece that we heard on the podcast. And um, on the last show where we were talking about Dennis Azabajic, this whole thing came up about the competition and about this set piece and how the set piece works now. And we specifically talked about this piece by Matt Dunn. And uh, I remember you saying that you weren't that um, enthralled with it at the time. Uh, right. So, yeah, I don't know. Let's let's talk a little bit about that. Has your, um, you know, after listening to this recording, has, has your opinion changed at all? Has it stayed the same? Um, what do you think? Well, I remember my opinion started to change about the piece somewhat when I first heard Jerome play it, and there were two others at least. One, a guy named Colin Davin, and I don't even know how Colin's career has gone since then, but he made it all the way to the finals at that GFA. He was very good. And then there was a young woman who was maybe 17 or 18 years old who also played it really well. Um, the As a judge, they sent me a copy of the score well ahead of time so I could look at it and uh, know what to expect because of course the, uh, the judges hadn't seen the piece either just like the performers get the piece I think exactly six weeks before the competition and their task is to learn it as well as they can in that limited amount of time and do a good job playing it um, so I also we didn't have any recordings to go by listening so I, I got my guitar out and you know kind of played through it myself and listen to it seems like I emailed Matt and asked if he would send me a MIDI file or something like that and he did he he sent me something to listen to I, I don't remember what it was it was either a finale generated mp3 file or a MIDI file or something so I got to know sort of what the piece was supposed to go like but the piece didn't go very well for many of the guitarists I think they probably didn't put as much time into that piece as they did into their the pieces they really liked, you know, the ones that are their choices. Yeah. And, do you know, uh, um, how, do you have any idea how much time they had to learn this piece? Well, they had six weeks. Six weeks. Okay. Yeah. And I think some of them worked on it harder than others. And it was, it was pretty obvious that Jerome had done a really good job learning it as did Colin and the young woman whose name I can't remember. Now, but uh, what they did for me was to take a piece that I didn't think was very good and really sell it and make it beautiful. And uh, it kind of makes you realize that uh, a lot of pieces might not ever end up sounding good if there's not some performer out there willing to really sell it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. So, and that all came back to me when I was listening to this recording. Just this morning, I was listening to Appalachian Summer again. And Jerome plays it beautifully. It, it's actually a very, very nice piece in his hands. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. Um, I, I remember um, talking about this piece with you, you know, on the last podcast that we did, and I'd never heard it, you know, um, at all ever. Uh, so the first time that I heard it was when we, um, or when I started listening to the CD, you know, preparing for the podcast, and. Uh, uh yeah it, it, he he did I thought he did a great job with it too and and I think it's uh I think it's a nice piece uh, I think it's got some uh some cool moments 
So yeah, overall, um, yeah. So okay, so uh, I guess we can just get into the recording and just start talking about it here. Sure. Um, so the first excerpt is uh, one of your picks. So you know, just like normal, we both picked six excerpts from the CD. Um, sort of uh, moments that we thought were highlights and uh, we're going to talk about them. And it's uh, the first excerpt is the first movement prelude from uh, the uh, suite Opus 41 by another French Canadian, uh, Jacques Etou. Um, and uh, just a little bit about um, Etou. He was born August 8th, 1938. And he died February 9th, 2010. Uh, so less than a year ago. Yeah, yeah, really recent. Um, born in Quebec. And, uh, you know, very noted Canadian composer. Well-known, especially in Canada. Um, but, uh, what, you know, I'll, I'll let you take this one because um, this was your pick. And then I'll, I'll, I might say some things about it. But, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, this is not a piece I really knew before hearing this recording. I, I may have heard it once or twice in my life, uh, but I think it's a nice piece. And the, the first movement, the prelude, what I like about it is how it's basically a bunch of arpeggios and the composer builds in melodies by uh, like using the highest couple of notes in each arpeggio to to kind of suggest a melody. I guess the performer's task then is to make sure that melody comes through clearly. And uh, Jerome is very good at that. So I, I don't really have anything more um, profound to say than I think it's just kind of cool how the melody arises from the arpeggios there. Okay, so that was the prelude from the uh, Jacques Etou suite, and um, I, I don't know. We were we won't really get into it. We were, we we're kind of having a discussion off the air about um, this piece. You know, it's kind of um, a little more abstract than a lot of the pieces you'll hear, especially on guitar records. Uh, you know, harmonically abstract. Um, yeah. we, which, yeah, can be a, an interesting subject, but also kind of a touchy one. You know, it gets into 
um, uh, I don't know, just people's preferences, you know, what they, what they like and don't like. But, um, as far as, uh, Jerome is concerned, I mean, his tone is, um, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful. And 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 he's really able to, you know, bring out, um, these melody notes, you know, at the top of these arpeggios and then, you know, separate these things. Yeah. He's got a phenomenal tone. Uh, and it's it's very even. Like no matter how fast he's playing, his tone is always beautiful, and that's not that easy to do. He, he does a great job. He's really able to bring out different lines in a contrapuntal texture. Uh, oh he, yeah, definitely. Very- and I, I think he can sell this piece. I mean, one um, you know difficult thing about playing a piece like this is that uh, if you're playing, say, Bach or something. Um, even though in a lot of Bach, you know, you look at uh, the source material, you know, there's no markings, right? It's just notes. There's no uh, hairpins or dynamic markings or anything. But, you know, you can use the clues that are there, the harmonic and contrabundal clues to uh, shape your performance uh, along with, you know, tonal practice or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, with a piece like this... Um, it's not so apparent, you know, what, what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to shape lines, um, how one, uh, you know, harmony is supposed to go, you know, work with another one and sort of weave in and out. It's not, yeah, it's not so, um, obvious. So, um, playing a piece like this and selling it is, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult. I I think he did it really well. Um, Yeah. yeah. So, okay. Nocturne, the um, second movement of the suite. Uh, I just thought this part of the piece was was really cool. I mean, uh, again, you get this sort of um, disjointed harmonic sense, you know, like you're not sure where it's going. But um, really, in this example, we're talking about Jerome's tone and uh, is just awesome in this part. Mm. Um, He... And, and how he's able to separate, there's sort of a, like a three-part layered texture in this part. You know, you have uh, the bass notes, you have the melody notes on top, and then you have these chords in between. Um, and uh, he can separate these three layers really distinctively. Um, it's a really, really cool. And then towards the end of it, the harmony notes become these uh, harmonics. That man just sound so crystal, you know, bell like, almost like uh, these little points of light or something like these little perfect points of light, almost. Um, yeah. Anything you want to say about it? No, it's it's beautiful. I mean, it, it just sounds like the rest of us playing very musical, really clear, incredibly beautiful tone. Okay, so this is yeah. from the uh, second movement, Nocturne.
Okay, so we just heard the nocturne of uh, Jacques Etou, and we're going to move forward to the last movement, the finale. Um, and uh, one of the things I like about this finale is, um, in sort of contrast to the a lot of the other uh, movements of the piece, is uh, it's a very exciting. It has a a really terrific. Uh, terrific rhythmic vitality that um jerome is really able to uh i don't know get across i mean we'll we'll hear later and, and talk about it later in the uh ginastera piece this this uh, rhythmic vitality that um he does a really great job at um at keeping up and and uh that is in this movement and i don't know this it just kind of rocks it, and it's kind of um like I said, a very stark contrast to the rest of the piece. Yeah, it, it, you kind of get the feeling when this comes along that uh, finally something really exciting is happening. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's great. Yeah, he keeps up the rhythmic vitality. The the very difficult parts, he does not even blink at. It just keeps on going right at tempo. It's really amazing playing. Awesome. So here it is, the um, finale of the Jacques Etou piece. We just heard Jerome Ducharme play the finale of Sweet Opus 41 by Jacques Etou. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And so what's next, man? Okay, so next we have uh, one of your picks. It is from the Fantasy Sonata Opus A22 of composer Juan Manin. He's a uh, was a Spanish composer. Um, and uh, lived around the turn of the century, 1900, so late romantic, basically. Um, he was born May 14th, 1883, uh, in Barcelona, and died June 26, 1971. Um, so hmm. he 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 was. We were almost alive at the same time. Uh, I just, I was. I mean, that's almost exactly the years of Stravinsky's life. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stravinsky, I believe, was 1882 to 1971. Yeah. So he's a he's a contemporary Stravinsky, and it, it kind of shows in the music, at least of Stravinsky's sort of neoclassical period. You can kind of hear some similarities right. there. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Um, you know, the piece, uh, this piece, is a fantasy sonata was written in 1930. Um, okay. So that would have been consistent with um, the whole mm-hmm. new romantic movement in Stravinsky. And uh, he was a uh, Spanish piano and violin prodigy when he was a child, um, sort of touted as a, you know, his father kind of took him around Spanish society, almost like a young Mozart. Um, and uh, later on, you know, he he became a composer, um, didn't write a whole lot of music, but um, apparently the music that he did write was good. This is the only piece of his that I've ever heard. Um, Me too. Yeah, and uh, this is the only piece that he wrote for guitar. 
and uh, apparently it was later expanded in an orchestra version. So there's an orchestra version of this piece out there. Mm. Um, okay. Yeah, but um, we were t- kind of talking about this on the last show, that there is not too many pieces out there of this scope, you know, for solo guitar. Uh, we were sort of talking about that last time when we were talking about the Jose Sonata. Um, right. And uh, this is a big piece, man. I mean, it's a it's single Very movement. Big. Yeah, it's uh, eighteen minutes uh, continuous, and, and like I said, for guitar, this is like a massive piece. Um, so we're gonna start with one excerpt that we pulled from you know around the first third, I would say, of the piece, mm-hmm. um, and uh, this was your pick. So I'll just let you take this one. Yeah, the the piece is really amazing. Um, Like you said, you don't get many pieces for solo guitar that are on this scale. It it has a an expansiveness about it that's uh, it's wonderful to hear. It's a very well written piece. It's got some really beautiful moments, and uh, the moment that I chose from it is from about I think the three and a half minute mark, and it's the second theme of the sonata form. And I like it because it's a, a nice contrast to the stuff that's come before it. It's this beautiful lyric theme, and uh, it's sort of punctuated by these nice little rhythmic bursts in the background. And um, it's just, it's nice. I like second themes in general. It seems like they're often more lyrical and gentle than first themes. <laughs> right on. So uh, let's listen to it. Uh, this uh, first excerpt from Juan Manen's Fantasy Sonata for Guitar. excerpt I pulled uh, a, another section of this piece but uh, from later on in the piece about 12 minutes in and um, this is you know I don't have the score or anything to this for this uh, piece and you know prior to this I've never even heard it or heard of it um, or even heard of the composer <laughs> me neither on yeah. all accounts <laughs> yeah um, but uh yeah, what I think this is, and you know, from listening to the excerpt that you pulled, John, um, I think this is a sort of an expansion and in a development of the second theme in in the kind of mm-hmm. development section, uh, because even though it's a uh, it's in a different mode, it's mostly in a major mode as opposed to a minor mode that it was in before. Um, it's still this um, very lyrical, very beautiful melody and accompaniment, and it has these 
rhythmic interjections just like uh, I did before Mm -hmm. uh, in the other example. Um, And uh, I don't know. What do you think these interjections are? I mean, do you think they're more sort of dancing, sort of maybe flamenco references, or is it like a kind of militaristic rhythm? Or It could be either. Maybe he's trying to do like Segovia always suggested the guitar did, and that is to um, imitate the sound of an entire orchestra in a very focused way. Maybe these are little other instruments um, doing accompanimental figures in the background and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, that could, that could totally it? be it. Segovia used to say that it was like looking uh, looking at an orchestra with the binoculars the wrong way. Uh, <laughs> that, I think that was what he said. But uh, His viewpoint was that the guitar was capable of so many colors that it was like a tiny little orchestra. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and I think, you know, um, we're talking about uh, Ducharme's tone. And, uh, yeah, he is one of these guitarists that, uh, and I think, um, we'll really be able to hear this too, um, in the, uh, Rodrigo piece, um, in particular that we're going to talk about in a minute, you know, that he's able to have this variety of tone that sometimes, you know, it does kind of sound like a little orchestra. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, let's listen to it. Um, this uh, this uh, final excerpt from uh, Manin's Fantasy Sonata, Opus A22. Our next group of excerpts is from Joaquin Rodrigo. And uh, as we do more of these Laureate series, classical guitar CDs, I'm sure we're going to do a lot more pieces uh, by Rodrigo. 
he was one of the, the the major major composers for classical guitar in the last century and wrote the classical guitar concerto uh the concierto de Ranwes, uh which is um i don't know it's just it's the concerto for guitar um the most famous and uh a little background on rodrigo um he was born november 22nd 1901 and died July 6th, 1999. Um, so he pretty much lived the entire 20th century, the whole span of it. Um, he went blind at age three. Uh, I think he contracted diphtheria or something. Uh, it rendered him blind. Um, and uh, he was a pianist. He was not a guitarist. Uh, he wrote all of his pieces in Braille, uh, which were then you know, transcribed from the Braille for, for publication. Um, that's, that's pretty amazing to me. It is amazing. <laughs> um, he, uh, just as some other information, I mean, he's actually the second student of Paul Ducat that I've talked about on this show. The first being, uh, Maurice Duraflay. Um, and, uh, I thought this was kind of interesting and it's something that I didn't know about him in 1991. He was, elevated to royalty by King Juan Carlos I and given the title yes and he was given the title Joaquin Rodrigo Vidre first marquis of the gardens of Aranjuez awesome that's his official title which actually his daughter now that um, Rodrigo and his wife have both died his daughter has taken this title over so apparently this Marquesa or something yeah this title is going to be in the family um, I, I guess once you get it you have it. <laughs> well, he's done more to raise the, um, you know, the the prominence of the Aranjuez uh, Gardens than anyone ever could have. Oh yeah, that, I mean uh, that concerto. Yeah, Rodrigo is like, basically, Rodrigo is to Spain what Duke Ellington is to this country. I mean, he's like the ambassador of this country's music, and he totally embodies Spain in his music. Um, yeah. The Concerto de Aranjuez, I mean, if if ever you go to a symphony orchestra concert and there's going to be a guitar concerto, it's almost certainly, like nine times out of ten, it's that concerto. Yes. And the slow movement especially is one that has uh, been done in many... Well, I was telling my wife about this when she was asking who Rodrigo was, and I was explaining about these, these pieces, because I was running all around the house yesterday singing the uh, Fandango. Oh, nice. And uh, she was wondering what in the world I was singing. So I was telling her about Rodrigo and said basically that the the slow movement of that concerto is one of those pieces that's always on those anthologies of music, like Quiet Moods or uh, Music um, to Wake Up By, or whatever, you know, it gets anthologized in those kinds of things. It's kind of like the Barbara Adagio for strings, you know, in its, yeah. um, I mean, it, if, well, it's the, the one that goes, let's see. Let's see. And, and so forth. Does that sound like the right melody tone? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sort no, that's of. That's it. That's it. I, I can't really hold the guitar in the right position right now, but uh, it's. I've heard it done by like jazz saxophone players and stuff. Come on, you don't have like an English horn in your drawer. 
Uh, sorry, man. I, I, <laughs> I might be able to dig up a harmonica. No, that's okay. Uh, but... That's okay. <laughs> uh, about the, um, you know, you said you were singing the, mm-hmm. uh, what did you say you were singing? The Fandango? The Fandango, yeah. Well, you haven't sung yet this podcast. Do you want to sing a little bit of it? That's true. How's that? That's great. So now I I understand you have your guitar with you. Yeah. And um, you're going to talk a little bit about this first piece that, or first movement from uh, Rodrigo's three Spanish pieces, the Fandango. And uh, yeah, take it away. Yeah, this is the uh, Tres Piezas Españolas. Um, three Spanish pieces by Rodrigo and um, this Fandango is one of the best short works for solo guitar I know of it's so beautiful and it's got so many wonderful things in it and uh, the very opening is the excerpt that I chose Um, it, it could even just be the first bar the very first bar because it represents so much of what Rodrigo does in his music uh, he, there's this phenomenon it, I, it's not really peculiar to Rodrigo. Uh, other composers do it too, but Rodrigo does it so much that I always associate it with him. It's called the wrong note chord. And the idea is that uh, he uses a chord and just puts a wrong note in there. So it sounds something like this. And the harmonies there are clear. I mean, he's essentially trying to do these harmonies. Uh, but he, instead of just using old tonal chords, he livens them up a little bit with a wrong note. So in this chord, he'll throw in this note. So it sounds like this. Instead of this, it's this. And then in this chord, the one where instead of this, it will be... So when we get... And you'll hear these wrong note chords all throughout Rodrigo's music. It's one of uh, his signature um, stylistic features, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah. one that I really like. I always tell my students, who my, my composition students, if they're writing music that sounds too tonal and they just can't figure out what to do, I said, just stick a wrong note in the chord uh, like Rodrigo does. And uh, that'll help spice up the harmony a little bit. Mm-hmm. So that's the extent of my performance for uh, today. Awesome. Thank you very much. Yeah, man. Um, So, yeah. um, We'll just, you don't want to just, we'll go ahead and uh, play the Fandango. Okay, so that was the very intro, the the very beginning of the Fandango. And um, John and I apparently like this piece so much that uh, I picked 
an excerpt from the same movement just slightly after the one that he did. Um, so this is uh, the, the first theme, a sort of uh, lyrical, uh, very nationalistic Spanish theme. And uh, I don't know if this is uh, Rodrigo's own theme or if it's a like a Spanish folk tune. I don't know. Do you know? I don't know. I, I don't think it's a a borrowed folk tune. I think it's a tune that he wrote to sound like a Spanish folk tune. Yeah. Well, and, it definitely sounds like that. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. So what do you think of this? Oh, I, I love it. I mean, it, to me, it's one of the greatest moments in any piece of music I know of. The When this theme comes in, it's so beautiful. And it's such a start. I mean, I was just talking about the wrong note chord, right? And the the wrong note chord aesthetic is one that has permeated the whole piece up until this moment. But when this theme comes in, notice that the harmony goes back to correct note chords. Yeah. And so it sounds much more folk-like at that moment. And then he'll intersperse some wrong note chords in there between presentations of the theme. I don't know if you're going to let it play that long, but up through... Uh, he, he presents the theme in three or four different registers and then in a different key. I mean, it's just great. And what's awesome also, sorry, I don't mean to take over your cool part here. No, man, but, go, go ahead. Um, the, the melody, it's a, it's a very difficult passage to play because uh, the melody by itself is not that hard. But um, what's hard is that against that melody the guitarist is supposed to be doing these boom and it's really hard to play the melody in its beautiful lyrical way clearly uh, as a distinct part away from the the chords that accompany him and yeah. Jerome does a great job with this oh he does an, uh, just a man such an awesome job with this uh you know a lot of guitarists play this piece a lot of guitarists play Rodrigo's music period um, this is one of the best recordings I've heard of this piece um, and uh, you know what this reminds me of I don't know if Rodrigo had this uh, I don't know if he intended this or not but um, the wrong note part the wrong chord part that that um, starts the piece you know I, I kind of imagine um, this piece is the you know the fandango it's a Spanish dance uh, I kind of imagine, you know, that uh, they're in a you know bunch of people in a dance hall, uh, drinking. There's dancers. There's multiple guitar players, and um, they start the piece, you know, with these chords, and it's fun. It's frolic. People are drinking. You know, some wrong notes mm -hmm. might get in there. You know, yeah. So a couple guitars clash, but it doesn't matter. Uh, then you know when this part comes in, it's like when the cantor comes in or the singer, you know, mm -hmm. and he sort of comes in above everybody else and everybody else in the background sort of backs off a little bit. And, um, then, you know, the, all the guitars come back in and the dancers, we have this sort of wrong notes going on again. And I don't know if that's what he's intended, but that's kind of what I see, you know, in my mind when I hear this, I, I could totally see that there might also be with the wrong notes, a hint of the typical traditional Spanish percussion things like, uh, uh, castanets or or things like that it definitely gives the <clears throat> the chords a more percussive sound to have these wrong notes in there yeah okay so here is the um the middle part of the fandango of rodrigo three spanish pieces <laughs> 
Okay, so that was uh, the Fandango, and we're going to move to the second uh, Spanish piece, the Pascalia. And uh, first we should talk about what a Pascalia is. The first one, Fandango, was a dance. The Pascalia is not a dance. It's a more of a, a compositional form, I, I would say. It's basically a repeating bass line where you have... Um, almost like a variations where you have a sort of uh, varying music over the top of this repeating bass line. Right. It's a variation form. It's, it's yeah. a Baroque era variation form. But instead of being variations on a theme, it's variations above a repeated bass line. Mm-hmm. Um, and, similar uh, to a... Sorry, go ahead. No, you're going to say similar to what? To a Chaconne. Uh, right. A chacon, though, is uh, variations over a chord progression rather than over a bass line. Mm-hmm. And um, John still has his guitar out. And yeah. uh, are you going to play us the bass line, the repeated bass line? Mm-hmm. I'll give it a go here. Man, that was bad there. I played a C sharp <laughs> instead of a C. Hang on. Let me start this again. It's uh, there's a, another phrase to it. And now is when it repeats. And so forth. And in the recording, there's another great example of Rodrigo doing wrong note chords here. Over the bass line here in measure, I don't know, 8 or 10 or something, you hear... Uh, uh, here... example of uh, where you've got uh, an F double sharp and a G sharp happening at the same time. This is supposed to be a like a basically a dominant harmony, an E major chord, but he throws in the F double sharp to make it sound like this. Yep. And those other um, great uses of um, wrong note chords in there too. Rodrigo's the wrong note king. <laughs> Yeah, and um, so if you can remember, uh, as a listener, if you can remember that bass line that John just played, the excerpt that we're going to listen to is from the end of the Pasacalia, where he's really sort of uh, getting into it and varying the um, stuff that's going on top, you know, a lot. And uh, you'll hear a lot of different things in a very short amount of music. You'll hear this sort of sweeping up and down technique that uh, you can hear in the Aranwes concerto a lot. Um, you can hear these sort of staccato flamenco-like rhythms towards the end. Um, and it gets very exciting um, just all towards the end of the piece. Uh, he says here on the last page of it, Ritmico como un fandango. So uh, he's got, it says rhythms like a fandango. Uh, here on the last page, but it's it's also got these uh, the arpeggios you were talking about. They just go up and down. Uh, that was good. Did you hear that? Uh-huh. You, uh huh. Maybe you could put put that over. You know, kind of superimpose it over his recording too, because yeah? I'm sure it'll fit right in. Yeah, yeah. Watch for that in the outtakes. I'll take um, John's <laughs> bass line that he played, and then I'll put the that over it, so you can you can hear Excellent. John's own version of the Pascalia. Yeah. 
All right, so here it is, Pascalia. Right, so the last movement that we're going to hear from the Rodrigo is the third movement, the Zapateado, and um, this is your uh, pick once again. I'll let you take this for the most part, but um, one thing I wanted to point out, and um, I'd like to actually watch Jerome do this, he has some freaking fast scales, and I, I'm not sure. Mm. Yeah, and, and I'm not sure how he's playing these scales, um, just from a technical standpoint but they're so fast and so clean um that's pretty amazing (laughs) yeah yeah man really amazing so yeah go ahead yeah there are two passages near the end where he does it's a very fast tempo and it's eighth notes through almost the whole thing it's a six eight meter eighth notes through almost the whole thing but there are two passages where he plays these 16th note scales and he stays exactly in tempo and it is so fast I mean, the the kind of speed that normally only a violinist could do with like a single stroke of the bow. Uh, yeah, or there are, you know, there are some flamenco guitarists out there like uh, yeah, there's that Paco too, de yeah. Lucia who can do this. But but when they do it, you know, their their tone is always like, you know, it's like, really raspy, you know, sort of tone. Yeah. And and um, he does it with this sort of, you know, silky smooth. <laughs> I don't know how he does it. I'm betting it's really light rest strokes. Uh, just like super fast light rest strokes, but uh, it'd be I'd be curious to find out. Um, anyway, th- this is a really great movement, and I the excerpt I chose was uh, about a minute and forty five to the end of the piece, where it shifts kind of from uh, minor to major mode. It's it's mostly in E minor, but it, it shifts over to E major toward the end of the piece, and then it, it goes back to minor for a while. And I just I really love the the shifting from minor to major, and uh, there's lots of wrong note chords in there. They're these cool little slidey things where he goes boom, pew doom, pew doom, and uh, it's got the the staccato ending is always just awesome. I mean, it's it's not an easy ending to nail because you have to get it just right. It's not one of these things where you hit a great big chord and let it ring or something. The ending is just be da 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 and it, it's it's hard to get right, and he does it so perfectly. 
And uh, I, man, I there's there's so many things in this movement that are so difficult and so hard to nail. Like you're talking about the ending, yeah. and man, he just nails it all. He sure does. Um, so. Okay, so let's listen to it. Zapateado from uh, Rodrigo's three Spanish pieces. you say do you say genistera or henistera well it's interesting that you should ask that i've always said henistera and uh that in normal spanish pronunciation would be correct henistera the the g is normally pronounced huh like a like an h however apparently he is of Italian descent and wanted it to be pronounced genistera i still have a hard time saying it that way just because I know that he's from Argentina, and it seems like it ought to be Henestera. Yeah. Maybe I should just say Genestera and get everything wrong. <laughs> I don't know. Uh-huh. But anyway, the next excerpt then is from the Henestera guitar sonata. Another one of those great examples of a major work for guitar written by a very famous non-guitarist composer. Yeah. Yeah, and um, in this very first movement, um, which is called, and let me drop stuff. Esordio um, or something? Uh-huh, es- Esordio or Esordio. I don't know where the accent. It would be Esordio. Esordio, okay. Um, and uh, I have no idea what that means. I should have looked that up. See, I'm so, that's how prepared I Keep talking, I'll to. look it up. Yeah, so um, that's what the internet is for. So in this first movie, well, let me let me give you a little bit of background on Genistera, Henistera, um, Janistera. He was born Buenos Aires, April 11th, 1916, and died in Geneva, Switzerland, uh, June 25th, 1983. Um, and uh, let's see. The, the the one thing oh, one thing I, I saw on there that I thought was kind of interesting um, when I was uh, researching just a little background on Ginastera is that in the 70s um, apparently uh, 73 75 something like this um, the Prague rock group Emerson Lake and Palmer recorded the last movement of one of his piano concertos um, and uh, 
Keith Emerson hmm. apparently went to visit Ginastera in Switzerland and played this arrangement for him of this concerto. And Ginastera was so apparently blown away by it that um, he said Keith Emerson was the first person to ever capture correctly the spirit of his music. Wow. Yes, Keith Emerson, Emerson Lake and Palmer. That is awesome. (laughs) Uh, And so they went on to record it. And uh, I guess Keith Emerson did some more of his pieces um, later on. But um, I just was, I was like, wow, Emerson Lake and Palmer was the first group in the composer's mind to capture his music correctly. I just thought that was really interesting. Um, That's amazing. So (laughs) anyway, that's, that's a, a total aside, but um, in this. So first... while you were, uh, I'm sorry. While you were talking about that, I found that the word esordio is Italian. It's a noun meaning debut, beginning, opening, or outset. Okay, that that makes sense. It does. Um, in this first movement, and I know you were going to talk about this a little bit, but he starts with just the open strings of the guitar. Um, you know, just just strumming the the open. <laughs> Yes, that and for some reason, uh, Ginastera had sort of a, a special love or a special connection with this this harmony that that, that the open strings of the guitar makes. Uh, it, it appeared in more than one of his pieces. W- one of my favorite pieces of his features this is a lot. It's a, the, his Variaciones Concertantes, his concert variations mm. for orchestra. Do you know that piece? I don't know it. It's a great piece. It's a um, a variation for orchestra, and it really breaks. There's a bunch of movements. I mean, there's like 19 or 20 movements, something like that, really small movements, and it breaks the orchestra down into these little subsets. Um, so it gives these performers and the orchestra a chance to kind of play in a more chamber music setting. So there's like one movement that's like for harp and viola, and then there's another movement that's for you know, bass and trombone. I, I don't know if that's, but that's, right. it's, it's been a while since I've heard it, but um, the, that piece also starts with this uh, harmony, this um, the open strings of the guitar sounding throughout the orchestra. And you yeah, have he it. does that in a bunch of pieces. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I've go got ahead. a list of some of them here. Um, you know, when uh, he, he, the reason he, likes the guitar so much and he's not the only composer but the guitar of course is the typical instrument of the gaucho Uh, the gaucho is the cowboy of argentina and he's sort of in the early part of the 20th century was the, the gaucho was chosen as to be like the symbol of the nation and so a lot of classical music of that time is based on gauchesco traditions uh uh, music that is inspired by gaucho dances or song types or things like that. And the gaucho's instrument was the guitar. And so the use of this chord is symbolic. Uh, it represents the the gauchesco tradition in Argentine uh, culture. So he does it at the beginning of this piece. This is one of his later pieces for doing it. I mean, it, it actually is a guitar. It must have been really cathartic for him to write something on an actual guitar using the open strings of the guitar. Uh-huh. But um, <laughs> the uh, one of his early pieces, the Malambo Opus 7 for solo piano, 
exactly that. I mean, it, it sounds, if it didn't have, if it wasn't on a piano, it, you would swear it was a guitar because he uses exactly those notes. The Pompiana number one the, for violin and piano also does the guitar thing at the beginning. The string quartet number one in the third movement, he does it. The Obertura para el Fausto Criollo um, does it very close. It's not quite exactly the strings of the guitar, but it's so close that clearly he's trying to suggest the guitar. Then in the Pompiana number three and the Piano Sonata number one and so forth. I mean, it's just over and over. He uses this uh, symbol of the open strings of the guitar. It's it's pretty amazing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, anything else you want to say about this first movement before we play it? No, that's that's mainly it. I mean, it's, uh, like I said, it seems like the, the culmination of all these times when he's uh, suggested the guitar in works for orchestra or piano or whatever, he finally gets to do it on a real guitar, <laughs> and it, it must feel great. <laughs> That was the first movement from Gina Stara's Guitar Sonata, Opus 47. And uh, we're going to move on to the second movement, the Scherzo movement from it. Uh, this is one of my uh, excerpts. And um, really, uh, this movement really does play into the spirit of a Scherzo. I mean, the Scherzo, the literal meaning is is joke, right? Mm-hmm. That's and right. Um, it's just sort of... Uh, uh, virtuosic kind of a playful, uh, lighthearted portion of a piece. Um, and Ducharme, Ducharme, uh, I'm, I'm going to say Ducharme. I don't care. Um, <laughs> it doesn't have an accent over the last E though. I, I don't think it's Ducharme. Yeah. Okay. You're, you're, you're probably right. Ducharme. Uh, he really captures all these devices so incredibly well and everything happens in sex in such a quick succession i mean you mm-hmm. have like this uh super soft to super loud playing you have these slides all up and down the um strings you have these pull-offs and hammer-ons you have these tapping and beating on the guitar body um, with the fist and the fingers you have the uh real rhythmic strumming of muted strings the guitarist strums the strings behind the nut where the up where the tuners are. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so he's sort of doing like all this stuff, all these different techniques in really rapid succession. And all the while, he's really maintaining this um, rhythmic vitality and musicality that goes along with the piece. So, I mean, it's yeah. a great execution um, by Ducharme. It's a virtuoso showpiece, this one. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, <clears throat> here it is. We'll check it out. The um, second movement, Scherzo.
Oh, you know what? I just remembered what the um, this the not the set piece, but the required uh, non set piece was. It was Alexander Tonsman. Oh, uh, so the like the prelude from that sweet something something. Hang on, Let's see. <laughs> sweet something uh, something. Sweet for something. Sounds like something. an R and B tune. Sweet something something. Um, Barker. Wow, shoot now. This dumb music player on Linux doesn't have a composer tag, so I'm. Alexander. Uh, ah, well, I'll, I'll find out some other time. It doesn't matter now. God, what a letdown! I know, isn't that terrible? <laughs> Hang on, let me try. I, I, let me start up Banshee. That'll. Banshee has a composer tag and. You'd think I just had a five-hour energy or something. <laughs> huh. That's weird. I thought I... I sure thought I had uh, that whole Tonsman piece. Maybe I didn't. Oh well. Yeah, it doesn't matter. We can continue. Okay, well, um, okay, so we just heard the scherzo, uh, and now we're going to move on to our last excerpt for the show. Um, and this is a, one of your picks, John. The finale, oh. uh huh. The finale from uh, from the guitar sonata opus forty seven um, of Gina Stera. Um, so, yeah, what do you want to say about this finale? Well, um, it it it's a little bit like the scherzo. I guess. I mean, it's really fast. It's got this great rhythmic strumming to it. I like the strumming, especially. It's got. Uh, percussion, it's got harmonics, it's got sliding all around. It's just really fun and amazing. That's my you know, technical breakdown of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> uh, this is uh, a truly a finale. I mean, he, he does, you're right, he uses a lot of those same techniques that he used in the scherzo, but I mean, the, the mood is, it's different than the scherzo. I mean, the scherzo truly is kind of a playful um piece you know in the middle it kind of lives up to its name of joke a little bit uh, and this is a, a true finale i mean it's you know everything's coming to an end it's super exciting uh super flashy and all that all that kind of stuff do it I thought it was real close. They, I didn't see the finals, but uh, 
I thought it was really close between Jerome and uh, this guy, Marcin Dilla. He's the, the Polish guy I was trying to think of a moment ago. Uh, he won 2008, maybe. Maybe 2007. I don't know. But he was great, too. Okay. Well, I mean, he, you know, will, like I keep saying, you know, it's my goal to, to uh, do all these CDs. So perhaps we'll get to his eventually. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember what's on Marcin's uh See, let me see. I may have it in my collection here. Uh, I don't have the whole thing on this laptop anyway. But, uh, yeah, Marchand's uh, CD would be excellent. He came here and played the Concierto de Aranjuez with our symphony. And I went backstage and talked to him afterwards. And uh, he was he's super nice. He's an incredible guitarist. Was it a Zydeco version? Because that's, that's, all, no, they it was not. that's all they have, right, in Louisiana. It's a Zydeco <laughs> right, right. No, it wasn't. <laughs> they did the uh, the standard version. Oh, okay. And it was great. The conductor of our orchestra is Polish, too, so he and Marcin got on famously. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Um, oh, that's cool, man. Well, um, yeah, like I said, we'll, we'll probably get to his CD eventually. Um, and uh, that's it. You know, um, thanks a lot for coming on again and um, making the show, you know, what it is with you. Thanks, on. man. It's yeah. fun to get on here and get to uh, talk to you. We hardly ever talk to each other just in a normal way. It's always in a podcast like this. I know. It's because we hate each other. People yeah. don't know that. But um, we refuse <laughs> to speak to each other because we hate each other. But, you know, we pretty were- much, you know, I went all the way to Indiana a couple of weeks ago for this big conference and I didn't bother to tell Tony that I was there that weekend. That's right. Cuz I just didn't want to see him. That's right, because he knows if we if we lock eye to eye in person, there's going to be combat. I'm going to go now. Yeah. So, um <laughs> uh so but we put it aside for you guys, you know, for the listeners. Yeah. And um you know, again it was it was it was great to have you on, and uh, we'll do this Thanks. again very soon. Um, anything you want to, any parting thoughts, anything you want to plug before we go? No, I don't need to plug anything. Um, I enjoyed doing it. It was, it was great. It was uh, really nice just to get to visit this uh, CD again. I hadn't listened to it for quite a while, and uh, it's fun to do that. And it, you know, I, I was glad also that I finally took the trouble to dig into that Rodrigo score a little bit based on you know, coming on this podcast, I, I wouldn't have done it otherwise. And I, I learned some stuff from Rodrigo and, uh, anytime you learn stuff, it's good. Oh, definitely. And I mean, I, I was, um, I was really, uh, glad that I got to know this CD. I'd never even, um, heard this CD prior to preparing for the podcast. I mean, it was a lot different because the first two CDs we did, the Steve Kostelnik and, um, uh oh man, my mind is Dennis, blank. Dennis has a project. Thank you. Yeah. Um, those are two CDs that I'd known really well prior, and this mm-hmm. is the one. This one that I hadn't heard before, but I picked it because I knew you were a judge at this GFA. Yeah. And um, uh, yeah, man, it was is another another great one. So I don't know. Maybe at some point we'll run into like a really crappy uh, laureate series CD. I don't know. Probably there's probably no, not. I mean, prob- all no, these guys are. Just, I'm joking. Yeah. But, uh, they, <laughs> all I'm of sure them are good. All great. Yeah. <clears throat> the the one thing that can uh, you know make a CD less attractive for me is if they just play a piece I don't like very much. But um, otherwise, the performers are all really good, yeah. and uh, 
you know, um, the producers, Norbert and Bonnie, do an incredible job producing the CDs, too. So they always sound great. Oh, absolutely. Um, so I hope you guys will join us next time when we do another one of these CDs. And, um, you know, it'll be the same thing. It'll be myself and we'll have Dr. John Colt back um, to give, lend his special uh, voice, singing and otherwise, um, <laughs> <laughs> to the podcast. So um, thanks again, John. And uh, we'll see you next time. You're welcome. Thank you, Dr. Landman. <laughs> and that is going to do it for All the Cool Parts number 21. If you'd like to send us an email uh, with anything, uh, questions or comments, please do so at allthecoolparts at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Anthony Landman. You can... Look at the show notes at allthecoolparts.blogspot.com and you can check out my website at anthonyjosephlandman.com. I want to thank John Culp again and he will be back on for sure uh, for another episode on uh, one of these Laureate series CDs. And um, you know, I, I keep saying that we're going to do another Laureate series CD at some point that's not guitar and we are going to do that at some point i just don't know when but um we will do that at some point uh in fact um we did get an email from a gary k he said um i'll just read his email he says uh, i've been enjoying all the podcasts especially the ones where you're with another person e.g dr culp as in this one um and you both review and discuss certain music. Unfortunately, it always seems to be guitar music. Not that that is a problem, but there are other instruments that fit into the cool parts designation. Uh, can I suggest possibly coordinating with various music school professors who are experts in their own instrument and the two of you review music of that instrument? I would think that some of them would be very interested in spending an hour talking about their favorite performer and CD. Keep up the good work on the podcast. Um, and then he says his favorite shows have been the World of Warcraft show, the Zappa show, the Eric Whitaker show, the Burt Loms, and the Carl Stallings. So I appreciate that, Gary. And um, yeah, I, so definitely I plan to do other um, instruments. And definitely um, uh, there are other instruments that fit into the cool parts designation uh, besides guitar um, so I am currently working on that. So hopefully, uh, sometime soon we can, uh, do maybe one of these other laureate CDs. Um, and we might have another guest on of a different instrument. We'll see. So, um, with that, I'm going to leave you guys with the very end of Matthew Dunn's Appalachian summer, and we'll see you next time later.
Hey, performers, performing ensembles, and composers, All the Cool Parts podcast wants your music for All the Cool Parts Idol. If you're an emerging artist with a good quality recording and you'd like All the Cool Parts podcast to share it with the world, please email sound files and other details to allthecoolparts at gmail.com. Help me share your music with the world. And then it repeats. Yeah, <laughs> 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 